Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Goodbye, University. Hi, everyone. This is Janet with the Brain Whisperer call for the month of, what are we in? April? <laughs> um, we're talking about picky thoughts. And um, I'm so glad because Jeanette and Jackie are here on the call with me. Hi, Jeanette. Hello. And hi, Jackie. Hello, hello. Awesome. Um, it's not surprising to it won't be a surprise to anybody that uh, talking about how to get picky with our thoughts is something that lights me up because, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm so intrigued by brain science and what it has to teach us about our relationship with reality. And, um, and so when, when Jeanette posted the topic for the month, I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> let me add it. I thought of you too when we when this was when this one rolled around. I was like, "Oh, this is going to be perfect for Janet." <laughs> indeed, indeed. So yeah, I was bouncing off the walls a bit, and um, when I was going through my notes, honestly, there was the the biggest struggle I had with this one was trying to find a way to corral it all into something that would fit into an hour. <laughs> so, yeah, no promises. I may end up talking fast, and I may end up cramming a lot in, but. I think it's useful to have this stuff here because I think sometimes one of the challenges we get in when it comes to being picky with our thoughts is that sense of, but what if my thought is a lie or what if I'm making it up or what if I'm, you know, that thing of Abraham tells us about, you know, our tendency to say, but it's true when we're pointing mm -hmm. at something we don't like. Mm -hmm. And I think that this material, for those of us with a, slightly more engineering bent to our, the way we look at the world, this is a really good way to get us on board with the idea of, you know, we're making it all up anyway, so you might as well make up something you like. <laughs> Agreed. So, so I'm going to barrel on through the material, and you guys, I'm, I've closed my chat window, so I can't see my dashboard, so as people come on board or if there's questions in chat or whatever, um, uh, I'll, I'll check in from time to time, but um, please just I'll let you stop. Know, Thanks, Jackie. And if if I'm going too fast or if it's not making sense or or you want to stop and tease something out, please just interrupt me. Otherwise, you know me, I'll just barrel ahead because I get so excited. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to start out by, um, for those who aren't familiar with this, this work or haven't read my books, just the, 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 my usual kind of preface of Brain Science 101. Every aspect of our conscious experience of reality is delivered to us by the brain, from the pain of a paper cut to the emotional turmoil of a stressful day, to the satisfaction of solving a complex puzzle. We get the awareness of that from our brain. And it uses, our brains use a blend of input, context and memory to give us its best guess at what's actually going on. Uh, because there's about 40 million bits of information, sorry, 11 million bits of information per second, and our brain can process and deliver about 40 of those. So it clearly has to have systems in place to decide what to deliver. Um, we know, so reality is an opinion given to us by our brain and, it's, and it bases on, on a couple of things. One is what it already believes to be true um, and, uh, and another is memory and I'm going to touch on that in a minute. But I want to make the point right at the front here that we're not our brains, we're the users of our brains and the evidence is clear that human beings can use our thoughts and behaviours to literally and physically change our brains. The phenomenon is called neuroplasticity and it just means our brains are plastic, malleable, changeable. And in fact, it turns out that the brain is built, better built for change than any other organ in the body. So we've probably all been familiar with how a muscle can change when we do a workout in the gym on a regular basis. The brain changes faster than muscle. It changes faster than any other organ in the body. Uh, it's designed for change and that feels really juicy to me because it means all the old stuff that we were taught about brains being fixed, it's all complete crap. But one of the things that's really key and I want to flag it up front because I think sometimes this is something that um, in LOA world doesn't get really discussed very often and I think it's useful to know. Uh, and it's useful to know up front so that we can look at everything else through the lens of this. Um, and that is that 
we get to choose our brain. <laughs> we get to choose our brains. We get to choose our thoughts and therefore change our brains when we come to it from a position of non-judgmental self-awareness. And so it's really important that self-awareness is absolutely key because it enables us to take a step back from the thought we might have felt stuck in or mired in at that moment. We take a step back from it and we change it. But we have to do it from non-judgment. And, there's a, and the reason is that there is a phenomenon called ruminant thinking that I just want to tease out first uh, because I think that when we think about self-awareness, it's important to understand the type of self-awareness that we're flowing. So, and the key is non-judgment. So um, there's a, this, this ruminant thinking or rumination, it's a, it's a term that psychologists use. It, the word ruminant comes from the Latin ruminari, which means to chew over again. Um, if you studied biology in high school, you'll have come across the term ruminant. It refers to animals like cows who have a digestive a digestive system especially set up to deal with eating grass which isn't very high in nutrition you've got to do a lot of work to get the nutrition out of grass uh, especially if you're a big animal like a cow so what cows do is they eat grass which goes into a one special stomach and then they literally regurgitate it when at which point it's called cud and then they chew it again they chew on the cud uh, before they pass it down to a different set of the part of the digestive system yes it's pretty gross and disgusting and it's what we tend, what we can sometimes do with our thoughts. Uh, and the characteristics of ruminant thinking, it's when we're looking at a situation we don't like and we keep going through questions in our heads such as, uh, how do I change my thoughts and feelings about this event and how can I prevent disturbing thoughts and feelings in the future? Um, and you can see how it's very close to a useful kind of self-awareness. So it's kind of easier. To, it's kind of easy to slip into ruminant thinking, and the key lies in this just sense of judgment. That last piece about wanting to prevent the disturbing thoughts and feelings about the event—that's our clue. Uh, if we remember back to last month's topic about accepting all of life, saying yes to everything, letting go of resistance, and and letting go of judgment. If we're doing that kind of ruminant thinking, we are we tend to be, it comes from a place of judgment. It comes from a place of going, I hate this event, I hate this situation. What am I thinking about it? What am I feeling about it? I need to change it because there's something wrong and how can I prevent it in the future? You can feel, you can feel the difference. You really can. And the moment when you allow yourself to say, you know what, it is what it is and I'm just going to let it go. That's the moment when we enable ourselves to let go of that ruminant thinking and step back into that non-judgmental self-awareness and we know Janet, that we know that it's yes sorry go on uh, when you say it is what it is do you mean that about our situation as well as our thoughts or did you just mean our no, just thoughts as, about, our, about our situation gotcha, because gotcha. one of the things that i remember kim falconer talking about this once she said um she said it's not the it's not the, the thing whether it's the event the situation the person that's the problem it's our thoughts about it that are the problem and while we're in that ruminant thinking, we're sort of, we're, it's like spinning our wheels. We're saying, what are my thoughts and feelings about this? But we're not actually letting them be okay. We're sort of, we criticize ourselves for them. So it comes back to that, you know, there's that delicate dance we're always doing in LOA world, but where it's the dance between want to change it, don't need to change it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Want this thing, don't need it. Want this thing plus don't need this thing is how we get it. Yeah. And it's always a, balancing act so um, but we can tell how ruminant thinking feels because it feels pretty horrible so uh, that that sense of you know what I just have to maybe go and cry about this for half an hour really feel the feelings really feel the emotions and then move on and let it be okay that I'm feeling annoyed or angry or whatever and then let it go <clears throat> um, so I think that's you know it's like chewing over them over and over and over again the same thoughts it's like picking at a scab so it never heals <laughs> pardon me does that make sense sorry i just need to cough mm -hmm. it makes good sense and i am a scab picker so it's an <laughs> analogy that hits home uh, with me. <laughs> all right <laughs> that's so funny yeah i can i can pick at a scab too <laughs> um so what i want to really tease out is the the idea that when, when I talked about what Kim said, you know, it's not the event, it's not the thing that makes us feel bad, it's our thoughts about the thing that, that makes us feel bad. That's 
that's part of our clue to how this all works and why why and why it's so important to get picky about our thoughts and how we do it. <clears throat> and that's to understand that our brains deliver that our reality through story, through narrative, and story is a sequence of thoughts. So, and the stories, the narrative that our brain uses can be really short, things like, I'm hungry, the neighbor's just home, coffee tastes good, whatever it might be. Or they can be long and complicated. So, you know, that he's supposed to be home by now, but he's late again, and I wonder where he is. Well, he could be stuck in traffic, or he might be held back at the office, or, oh, I know he's out with that blonde from accounting, blah, blah, blah. That's the sort of, you know, these are, the, these are all different stories that our brain delivers to us in order to convey reality. And some of those stories are nonverbal. So sometimes they come in images, a sequence of images, and sometimes it's an, a nonverbal response like, ouch, or, oh, that feels good, or do you know what I mean? It's like there's, these things are all part of the story, and that emotions are all embedded within it as well. But the, the elements, the pieces of the story are the thoughts, and sometimes it's just a, think, a single thought. So our reality is delivered to us as this rich, dynamic explosion of awareness that comes in from all of our sensory systems and we make sense of it, including our emotions via our thoughts. So when we have an emotion, so we have a thought that then leads to an emotion, but then we have a thought about the emotion as well. We recognize I'm angry now or I'm sad now. These things are all coming to us in the form of thoughts and stories. So not, a, not only can we use our thoughts to change our brains, because remember I said before that's what neuroplasticity is about, our actual reality is delivered to us as a kind of two-way interaction between us and our thoughts. So Mike Dooley is talking literal scientific truth when he says thoughts become things. Our concept of every single thing around us, our concept of the mug that we're holding as we drink coffee, it's all coming to us in some way, shape or form as a sequence of thoughts. And those things present, us, present themselves to us through the context of our thoughts. Uh, and that comes back to that sense of we don't have a problem with the thing, we only have a problem with our thought about the thing. So can we use this to leverage our power to change reality? Absolutely. And I want to look at this in, uh, in three different ways. I want to look at this in terms of the past, the present and the future because all of our thoughts, uh, we tend to see them in a framework. When we become consciously aware of them, we see them in a framework of a kind of linear time because that's how we make sense of the world. Um, Einstein once said that something along the lines that time was purely a construct of human beings designed to, to, to help us make sense of the world. Uh, we know that everything, you know, the physicists tell us that everything is all happening all at the same time, but we can't conceive of that as we're going through our literal day-to-day -day life. So it's a, it's a nice thing to play with intellectually, but when we're trying to sort of navigate our way through the events of life, it, 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 it's a bit, it sort of adds to the confusion, potentially adds to the confusion. Sometimes it feels nice to kind of go, oh, there's another reality where everything is working out perfectly. And sometimes it's irritating to think that because it's like, so why am I stuck in this one? <laughs> we, don't want to, we, won't, we don't want to go there. So I thought it would be fun to look at this from the framework of past, present and future because all of those exist as thoughts. So first of all, our thoughts about the past, that's memory. Um, and we know, I, I, if you've, if you've um, there's another call sitting in the GB, GBU archives called Remembering the Future, where I go into a lot of detail about, um, about how this works. But I'll, I'll just whiz through it again so that people don't have to kind of refer back to that. Um, uh, basically, part of, a large part of how the brain works in terms of its, um, its storage of past events it's completely different from how we've often, uh, the analogy that we've often used. So we've often used the analogy in our culture of uh, looking at the memory as uh, being like a computer hard drive or a filing cabinet. It's nothing like that. It's more like a Wikipedia entry. It's editable and it's dynamic. And we know that technically speaking, facts are stored first in the hippocampus, but the information doesn't reside there, doesn't stay there. What happens is that every time we recall it, our brain writes it down again. And during this re-storage or re, um, re this retrieval process, that memory is reprocessed. In other words, the better analogy is a monk in a scriptorium. He only gets to read the story, the, the memory, while he's in the process of copying it out. And in fact, he only gets to see his own copy. And while he's making that copy, he might 
see a different see a word or phrase incorrectly and emphasize it slightly differently or he might highlight it with colored inks or he might leave a blotch which changes a letter which changes the meaning of a word or he might miss a crucial phrase and leave it out completely uh, or he might be engaged in ruminant thinking in which case he's really distorted the vision of what he's copying but he can only see the copy he's making not the original version and every time we go back to recall that memory whether we're telling it to someone else or simply thinking about it in our own heads we go through this retrieval process which requires us to re retell the story again reprocess it again and as a result over time that memory becomes really distorted or, or can become really distorted this is why siblings can disagree so powerfully about mm -hmm. a shared childhood experience you know that the memory and we're in that memory so it feels utterly real uh, and yet it's different we also know that we're really prone to creating false memories and that comes to choice of words uh, there's a wonderful TED talk by Elizabeth Loftus who works she's particularly interested in looking at memory and how it works in the judicial system where people are relying on eyewitness accounts to know whether an event how an event unfolded and what they've discovered is that the way in which people are asked questions about the event changes their memory of how the event unfolded so they used a, uh, they they simulated a car accident and filmed it one group was asked how fast were the cars going when they hit each other another group was asked how fast were the cars going when they smashed into each other the group that had the smash word in their uh, questioning not only did they estimate a much higher speed for the cars but they were much more likely to say they saw broken glass on the road and there was no broken glass there at all so when they looked at the film back uh, there were people in the experiment who swore that the film had been changed when they were allowed to re-watch it again they were so convinced by their own memory that they didn't believe it was the same film hmm. and I, I find that kind of shocking it's like if we are using really dramatic language mm -hmm. when we think mm -hmm. about a past event or we're telling it to someone else we can see how easily we can implant our own false memories because we're rewriting them every time we process them every time we retrieve them mm. so it's it's kind of you know it means our memories our thoughts about the past are pr on pretty shaky ground uh, the good news is of course that we can change those old stories we can make something up so this goes to how we change our thoughts about the past one of the techniques that's used by some therapists is to have people write a completely different version of an old event so for example someone who remembers childhood as a time of great loneliness and anxiety might write stories about how much she was loved and how much fun she had and she might use third person to begin with so she might start out by once upon a time there was a little girl who um, and in a remarkably short space of time if we use a process similar to that as we rewrite those stories of our past the, the brain changes its memories because we know how easy the, easily the brain changes that landscape of the past we already know that it's it's susceptible to false memories and it's easily you know it's distorting memory every time it looks at it so we can use that to our own advantage so I that's wonder, one of the Janet, first areas I wonder yeah. how accurate the term false memories is because if thoughts are things and the memory is a thought I wonder how false it is, as, or maybe it's just a different one, like that's literally. A, yeah, re, that's a know, really I, good point. I, I don't know. It's kind of a trippy thought. It is a very trippy thought. It's a very trippy thought. I really like that. I think in, this is, I, you know, because a lot of the research I do is, um, it tends to come from muggle right. world. They often yes. come from that, <laughs> yeah. that aspect too. So it's only, it's kind of really fun to bring it to this environment and kind of go oh my god absolutely <laughs> accessing a different reality where the broken glass wasn't there <laughs> uh, i'm sorry to interrupt wouldn't that, be, wouldn't that be funny when they ask in a in a courtroom well which reality were you in at the time <laughs> <laughs> i love that i'll remember that if i'm ever a witness no, for, for real that could be tricky in our justice system when you know muggles <laughs> acknowledge the plasticity yeah. of reality yeah yeah exactly i mean i i um i sometimes freak people out when on the very rare occasion where someone is rude enough to ask me to i face how old i am my normal response is to say well it depends some of the cells in my body are one day old and the <laughs> <actual> <laughs> <that> <laughs> 
you know, 13 billion years old. It's anywhere between those two numbers. <laughs> and, um, yeah, that tends to trip them out a bit. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a really good point, Jeanette, that the, the, our, our memories, because they feel really, they feel real because we're sort of, you know, that's the only way our brain knows how to present us the past that we, that it believes we have lived through. And so it's a really interesting way of looking at it that maybe what we're doing when we change our memories, change our thoughts, rewrite that story, we're actually resetting our our past because we know it's all happening all the time, all the all the time anyway. All of the realities are happening, and all of the time is happening all at the same time. And like I said, we can't we can't we can't experience life that way because it's just not for more right. than. I mean, we can do that when we meditate, but, but when we want, yeah. Uh, and yeah, absolutely. And it's you know it, it, it makes for a very slippery sense of reality, mm. and that's great if we want to let go of something, if we want to be able to mm. to control how reality works. But if we want to you know knuckle down and fix the coding on our website, or go to the shops and buy something nice for dinner, it, that's probably not how we want to be doing it all the time. Agreed. And we came here to have this physical, juicy, right? linear. Time-based experience, so why not make the most of it because it's fun? <laughs> All right, so let's look at the future. Let's look at thoughts about the future. We might call this imagination, and we know that thoughts about the future, uh, this, is where, this is where, in a way, we kind of get the idea that it's really important to fix, quote-unquote, our thoughts about the future because we want them to be positive so that the universe can give us the, the reality we want in the future. And this is an area where... I think we can get a bit sideways if we get too clingy or too clutching with our grip on I must manage my thoughts about the future or else. Um, I see this in people, especially who are new to LOA, this sense of, you know, they've they've heard that their thoughts become things and they immediately panic about, oh my God, I just had this terrible thought. Now I'm Now I'm doomed to something horrible. So I want to soften that up a little bit and say that, um, this is something of a trick subject <laughs> because our brains use memory to predict the future. This is what I covered in more detail, um, again, in that Remembering the Future call. And when we look at our thoughts, it's worth revisiting this as well. But basically, our brains have this efficiency system built into, that, built into them, which is really, really useful 95% of the time because it means we can predict what's going to happen next based on patterns from the past. That's really useful when we're driving in traffic or we're baking a cake or we're hunting a mammoth or whatever it might be that we're doing. But when the thoughts of the past make us believe in limitations on what is possible or make us believe that things will turn out badly, quote unquote, those memories aren't helpful. So again, when we have those thoughts about the future that we don't like, we can pretty much rely on the idea that those thoughts we don't like are probably based in some way, shape or form on a memory of how things have been in the past because our brains use that to predict what's most likely to happen. So if we're, if we're finding ourselves tripping up over a thought about how things might turn out in the future, um, it's, it's, worth, it's worth wondering, questioning whether there is something in the past that makes us think that. Not something necessarily in our own past, but perhaps something we've seen or read about how this thing unfolded for a large number of other people. So for example, if, um, if we get a scary diagnosis and, our doc and we sort of say to our doctor, you know, what am I, or our doctor says, we're not going to ask this question, none of us are going to ask this question, but if our doctor says to us, you know, you've got a 50-50% a chance of recovery, we immediately know <clears throat> he's basing his prediction, his or her prediction, on the events that have gone before and statistics that applied to other people. Now, even my dad, went, my dad was a GP, and he, whenever he was uh, helping to manage the case for a patient who had had a scary diagnosis, he was very reluctant to give them statistics because he knew, he wasn't into any of this stuff at all, but he knew from his experience that if he were to give somebody a, a statistical outlook that said 80% of the people with your condition don't survive it, that was likely to increase the chances of them not surviving it because he knew that, that somehow they were, even though he didn't want them to, they were giving over authority to him. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, it would be, I, I wish he was still alive and still in practice because it would be so cool to be able to talk about this with him. And I know that one of the things he used to say to people was, I'm not going to give you statistics because you are not a statistic, you're a, you're a person. And what's true for you is, you know, what's true for everyone else might not be true for you. So he would dissuade them, for, but of course then they'd go away and ask someone else and get told anyway. But So it's that idea that, Anything that we are thinking about what might happen in the future is likely to be flavoured by either our own memory or some information that we've found that's based on someone else's memory of, of what's already in the past. Well, we know how to deal with this. I feel a bit like Wesley going through the fire swamp. We already know how to deal with this. <laughs> we know that we can rewrite our memory. We know that we can challenge our memory. We know that we can look at something that says, this is how it's always been. And we can simply, I mean, we don't have to go back and laboriously rewrite it, we can simply go back and go, you know what, it's just a memory and I challenge that, I question it. It's not necessarily true. <clears throat> and even if that's how I remember it from the past, A, I don't trust my memory and B, that has nothing to do with how things might unfold. Right on. Um, is that making sense? Huge sense. Cool, cool. All right, so we've handled the past and the future. Easy peasy. <laughs> now let's just look at the present. Um, okay, for a start, we know that the present is just this fleeting moment and that even by the time I finish this sentence, that what started out as the present is now the past and it's our memory of the past. It's, in my, you know, it's your memory of what I said at the beginning of the sentence and how coherent that seemed. Um, but let's, let's kind of just look at the present in terms of you know, the present day or something that's a little looser because it's a bit easier to manage or to think about or talk about. Basically, this is where we look at something that is really, uh, we don't know whether other species do this. We have no way of finding out because we can't really ask them. But human beings are sense-making creatures. We make stuff up because we need things to hang together in a plausible and coherent way. Uh, in fact, the research has shown that the reason that we, the reason that our brains present reality as this uh, sequence of narratives or sequence of a sequence of thoughts that go to make up a story is not in order to provide accuracy. We're not driven by accuracy. We actually don't really care. At our deepest level, our brain doesn't care whether something is true or not. It, it just doesn't care. But it does care whether it hangs together and makes sense. It has to, it has to be coherent so that we can provide meaning to it. And because of this deep craving for meaning, we tend to do something called confabulation. I love that word. Basically what it means is that we fill in the gaps of information with plausible inventions that make the story make sense. So remember I was saying earlier that we, you know, the, the, the story might be he's late home from the office and it's because of, you know, maybe he was held up at the office, maybe he's stuck in traffic, maybe he's had a flat tire, blah, blah, blah. That's our brain seeking the seeking to find, figure out what the meaning is behind what's going on. We can't help but do it. We make up stories about all the bits we don't know. We make up stories about what other people are thinking or how they're behaving when we can't see them. We make up stories about things we read in the news, like what happened to that missing Malaysian plane. Remember the, the ferocious debates in when the Malaysian plane went missing what, a year and a bit ago and the incredible theories that were racing around the internet. It was people desperate, mm -hmm. not only to fill in the missing gaps, but desperate to defend their own version of what the story was, even though they had absolutely no evidence for, uh, for that story being real. Uh, we, we, use it to, we use it to make sense of who's to blame for something that we don't like. You know, when we play the game of they did this to me, it's our brains. It's partly part of that is our brain seeking to make sense of the story in a way that feels coherent and plausible. It's got nothing to do with what quote unquote really happens or really is really happening. And as the present becomes the past, as we move through time and the thing that's happening now suddenly becomes the thing that happened then, those made up pieces of the story become part of the memory collection upon which our brains are relying in order to predict the future. So there's this really complex relationship between past, present and future. And I, <laughs> I don't want to frighten you all, but we make it all up. Every single part of it is made up. This is why 
understanding that it's that reality, what we call reality, is merely the opinion of our brain, is such a powerful thing to understand. When you really get that at a gut level, it gives you so much freedom. Reality is incredibly slippery. Um, so you guys I like probably think of it. I like thinking yeah, so of it that way as freedom, Janet, rather than yeah. discomfort, because you know it can the, yeah. the whole slipperiness of it could you know maybe make someone feel a little uncomfortable. But I like yeah. thinking of it as freedom instead. And I yeah, I absolutely. And and I I just wanted to kind of kind of encapsulate what we've talked about to say that that this idea that that reality is much more slippery than we've been led to believe what that gives us when we remember that we are the users of our brain we are not our brain we're not its victims we're not subject to whatever our brain happens to make up we are the users of our brains the only reason that it might have felt like we weren't in control was because we didn't know we didn't know how we didn't know how it worked we didn't know how to use it but Part of what I like to do, what I love to do, is like bring, bringing people the user's manual for their brain a little bit. Um, so this is a nice segue <laughs> into how do we change the thoughts effectively and how do we get the reality we want? How do we use this to our advantage? Because it's one thing to know that reality is slippery, but just, just knowing that, like you say, Jeanette, that can feel a bit, um, well, you're just hanging me out to dry here. <laughs> what do I do with that knowledge? What's real, yeah. Yeah, exactly. What can I trust? Um, mm. So, first of all, we want to. We want to. I want to say: Does the brain remember every single thought that it experiences? Apparently not. Um, molecular biologist John Medina talks about um, the uh, the way that memory works. When the brain detects an emotionally charged event, the amygdala releases dop dopamine into the system, and dopamine aids memory and information processing. It's a bit like our brain creates a post-it note that says, remember this. And this seems to be the case for all memory formation. Dry data is why when we were at school, the only way to get dry data in was just to go over it and over it and over it again until we wore a hole in our brain. Dry data is really hard to remember for most of us. Yes, there are people with eidetic memory and that's a whole different kettle of fish. But most of us, we need a juicy, engaging story in order to effectively form memory and form these, the, 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 this, this new story, these new stories about how we want the reality to look. <clears throat> and that's our clue to how to change the thoughts effectively. We need to find things that, in, we need to find new thoughts that engage us in juicy ways. And that means either sensory engagement or emotional engagement. We also know from the world of neuroplasticity that there are two key things required in order to make these changes that we want in the brain. One is that juicy, rich engagement and the other is repetition. So we can't just do it once and, uh, and have that, well, actually that's not quite true. We can if the, if the once is powerful enough. Uh, this is why you know, some, a, a sudden blinding epiphany can come out of nowhere and change everything. It's also why a very traumatic event can seem to change everything. We can have it happen in one blinding flash, but it's not the most, not necessarily the most comfortable way to do it. And this is what I wanted to touch on, the, the idea that, yes, reality is slippery. If we do nothing at all, we'll simply be left with the solid reality that we already know because our brains aren't going to suddenly let go of that old reality that they've constructed for us. So the notion that reality is slippery, isn't, isn't a, it doesn't mean that knowing this information means you'll suddenly question absolutely everything and nothing will, nothing will make sense anymore. What it does mean is that you, you may notice things in a slightly different way and when you do that, there is this potential for freedom. When it comes to getting picky about thoughts, which is the whole point of this conversation, what we want to do is we want to find our best picky thought tool and I come back to basics here. The best and most powerful tool is the one you will actually use. Mm. I'm not a fan of a boilerplate, one-size-fits-all kind of approach. Um, that's why I like taking the back off things to see how they tick. <laughs> when it comes to using thoughts to rewire our brains and change our reality, I want to know, uh, I want to use something that's going to be, um, rep something that's going to include those two qualities of juiciness and something that I'll be able to do on a rep repetitious basis or I'll be able to do in a devoted way without it getting boring. Um, so most of the law of attraction tools that you've ever read about 
have the potential to change your reality by changing your brain as you change your thoughts. But what works for one person isn't going to work for, for someone else. That's why that self-awareness without judgment is so important. And then a sense of what do you like to play with that lights you up. And, and playing, with, playing with different tools is one of the ways to, to, to figure that out. And the one surefire, solid gold, 100% guaranteed indicator of whether a thought will serve you is how does it feel. And the same indicator works when you're playing with an, a law of attraction tool. How does it feel? And this kind of brings me back full circle to this ruminant thinking idea that I started out with. If your current LOA tool or LOA practice has landed you in a place where it feels like hard work, or if you feel like you're spinning your mental wheels, there's a chance that it's, it's on the brink of slipping. I don't want to say that you've gone into ruminant thinking, but it's on the brink. It's potentially going to take you into ruminant thinking where you're trying to figure out why this process isn't working and what's wrong with you and blah, blah, blah. Anytime we get that sense of spinning the wheels, blah, 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 it's ruminant thinking at play. And I want to say that there's nothing wrong with you or the process you're using. It's just time to switch it up to something else. So this brings me back to something that Abraham talks about. Whatever it is that we're doing, whether it's an LOA practice or a sequence of thoughts we don't like, it's just a question. And I know this sounds really simple and it's not always easy to do, but it's what Abraham says. Put it down, go general or go play with something else. Leave that event or situation alone for now. Leave that memory alone for now. Go back to the principles we talked about last month, the principles of giving up early and often. And then when it comes to finding your right LOA tool, my short, or finding some tools to play with, my short answer would be, just look at, you know, do what Jeanette says. <laughs> um, because all of the things that Jeanette talks about, every single one of them that I've ever seen uh, that, that, that she's taught us uh, and that she's taught me, they work because they change our thoughts, change their brain, change the reality. <clears throat> Pardon me. And as you pointed out, Jeanette, that might mean that our brains are simply allowing us to access a different existing reality rather than, you know, uh, that it's creating it out of nothing. Um, and that's one of those fun conversations mm -hmm. that is really, it's really fun to talk about. But, the, but the, the point is, what does it feel like for me internally? Do I believe that my future can be wonderful? If I think it is, if I, think, if I decide to think that, then yes, I can. Um, so it's about bringing, and, and the other thing I want to say is about juiceful, juiciness, juicefulness, juiciness. It's got to be have that sense of playful juiciness to it. Anything that feels light is fantastic. Anything that feels heavy, it might be a symptom of ruminant thinking. So, um, so for example, I want to take a look at one of the examples that um, I can speak about with some kind of rueful laughter. Prey rain journaling. I love scripting now. I, I, I love doing written scripting. Um, you know, where we write every day as though the new reality has already happened. And uh, we bring the details to it that feel jo juicy and redolent and fun. And we tell and retell new versions of the story by engaging different details every time we approach the blank page. You can see how this is gearing our brain up with a whole set of new stories, a whole set of new ways of being. If we're sitting in the in our if we're imagining that this thing we want has already happened, we're creating a new memory for our brain where this thing has already occurred. It works where there's repetition, so we do it daily, and when there's juiciness we make sure the details feel good, you know, the rich and fun and exciting and delicious. But I want to say, when I first played with Prey Rain journaling, I did not understand this. I agonized over the words, I gritted my teeth and did it anyway, I dreaded the blank page every day when I turned up to it, I forced myself to write even when I was thinking this is complete rubbish, it's never going to work, none of it was juicy. I did the repetition but I didn't do the juicy part. It was like somebody gave me this beautiful new pen and instead of using it to write I just stabbed myself in the eye with it. It was completely misusing the tool. It was so stupid in hindsight, but I can laugh about it now. Uh, so, yes, uh, so it, the same is true of any tool. If you've got that feeling of, you know, it's a chore and it's heavy and it's too hard and you're making it hard work, please just take the hands off um, and bring the lightness to it because it's that lightness of touch and the devotion, the repetition 
uh, and that, that juiciness that's going to change the wiring in your brain, which is in turn going to give you access to a, a different reality. And when it comes to thoughts about things that are happening right in the moment, you also have the power to change that. But I do want to put a caveat here, and that is as we're going through experiences, we know not to squash our emotions. We know that we need to honour the emotion of what it is that we're feeling in the moment. Use that as our clue. So we honour the emotion. We use it as our clue to find out what the thought is that we're having, what, what meaning we are assigning to the current reality, and then we change it. We don't want to be trying to squash an emotion or deny that it's ha deny that we feel that way and honoring the emotion only takes it can do, it can take 30 to 90 seconds to just honor it acknowledge it and say yes i he i hear you i see you grief i see you rage i i acknowledge you and then um it's Janet? about you know taking the deep breath whatever it might be hello yes uh, Annette had asked the question, and it feels like this might be an appropriate time to ask it. It was earlier on in the call when you were talking about the importance of feeling our feelings. And um, she put in chat room, what if you can't stop crying? Um, Annette, I don't know if, if there was any more uh, to elaborate around the question than that, and I'm not in front of chat room mm, right now, question. so Jackie might know. But uh, um, I, I promised her I'd ask you. Yeah, that's such a good question. And I know, you know, I've I've had days where I've had that. And the first thing is, if this is, it sort of depends a little bit on context. So I don't want to make this a kind of prescripted, a prescriptive response. But if, you know, first of all, I want to say universe gets it. If we're really deeply upset by something, universe gets it. Like when my dad died, um, there were, you know, between... There were plenty of times in the hospital in that last week of his life where we had, it was like party time for the weekend before he died. And then, but within that, there were plenty of times where I had to leave the room and go and cry. I had to go and go to the toilet and, you know, sob my heart out for 90 seconds and then come back into the room because I didn't need him to be, you know, he was already ministering to everyone else who was going through, <laughs> through distress. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to bring that to him as well. That I did on a couple of occasions, and and you know that was fine. Um, and during things like you know organising the funeral and at the funeral and so on, there were plenty of there was plenty of time for tears. And um, when I got home and it was my first time on my own, I I allowed myself a day where I went through cycles where there was deep grieving and tears, and then I would be okay for a little while, and then it would come again. And it was just—it was like surfing a wave. Um, there are other times where, and I always figure that universe, universe understood what was going on, and you know I get a free pass, I get a free hall pass for stuff like that. Um, when there are circumstances that feel like they are not going to change anytime soon, and the tears are—it's almost like there the, there is a a, a a theory, and I this one's. I've found arguments on both sides of this. There's a theory that says that there are toxins that can only be released from the body through tears. I don't know that that's actually been proved yet, but I like the idea that tears are always a sign of releasing resistance. So when tears are there, they aren't necessarily in and of themselves a bad thing. The question is, uh, are we at the eye of the storm? Tom Stone talks about this in his work where the idea that if there is a strong emotion, tears can be a sign that we're caught up in the turbulence around the emotion. It's like we haven't yet been willing to go to the heart of it and visit with it. Uh, and Jeanette, I don't know, do you have Tom's stuff, resources in the... I want to say it's from resources? Great Life Technologies. I don't know that I have a link anywhere at GVU. I've I've studied it myself. I, I don't know if I even still have the original recordings. Yeah, I. I but, um, but but you know another thing he says in that Janet is that you know if if this is if you're accessing some long buried stuff, it might take more than a minute or you know a couple yeah. to process because yeah. you know you got a lot of stuff buried and it's like peeling away the layers. This is true. This is a really good point, and it's it's really this is where having some non-judgmental self-awareness is really important because if there is something very ancient being released and I've had this experience recently myself with something that was very very ancient and the process of releasing it 
became much easier when I was willing to say it is what it is and I'm okay with going through this rather than oh my god what's wrong with me I'm broken because I can't stop crying which a lot of creators will say that because of our training around our vibrations and how important they are Hmm. yeah Uh, but yeah depending on the context and if there is something that you are struggling to handle on your own at that point that's where I would say for God's sake hire a coach um, and the truth because, is, we do stop crying. I mean, we don't literally yes. not stop crying. Yeah. It's just maybe longer yeah. than we prefer. Even if it means crying ourselves to sleep, you know, I, um, mm-hmm. I've done that. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes that's what it takes is to just cry yourself to sleep. If that's what it takes, then do that. Um, but I do want to say, you know, if, if it's been going for a month and you're still kind of really struggling with it, then I would say reach out for some help because I don't want to sort of suggest that because, you know, the the truth is that we are, all of us from time to time, in need of support, one-on-one support. And that might mean, uh, and you know, finding a compassionate witness, finding the right kind of support, that's really, really important. So if you've got a friend or a buddy who's who's going to be the right person for you to do that with, then great. If, that, if you feel you need something more than that, then talk to a coach talk to your GP. I know in Australia, um, uh, I have used this once myself when uh, I was going through something that was really sticky and I thought I I probably need to see a counsellor. In Australia, there is um, free counselling available from going to see your GP. You know, if you see your your general practitioner, they can do you a mental health plan and refer you to a counsellor. I don't know how things work in the States, but I'm assuming that there will be some ways of getting some Mm -hmm. Um, immediate help because I think it's really important not to like if there is something like depression at play or something else that's really intense and acute and in the moment it is really important to feel okay about reaching out for support Um, because this isn't always something that we can simply you know I was reading an article the other day um, about uh, clinical depression and the way that, and I know a friend of mine who suffered with clinical depression some years ago, there's sometimes a sense that they, people who are suffering with depression can feel like the world is telling them, just get over it. All you have to do is change your thoughts. And I don't want to be implying that with this conversation, that, that you know, if, you, if you're struggling with, with changing thoughts, that doesn't mean you're broken, but it, does, it might mean that you need to get some, some expert um, support, whether that's a coach or a counsellor or, or whoever it might be. Mm-hmm. Well said. Thanks, Janet. Mm. What a great question. Thank you for that, because I think that's really important to say. You know, sometimes I get so excited about this stuff that I, you know, I want to make sure that, that people aren't feeling like they're kind of left out because they, they haven't, haven't mastered it yet. Well, I mean, we're all of us on a journey. <laughs> I, I appreciate it. I appreciate the emphasis on get support because I think many of us have a tendency to go it alone, whether because we think we should or because we don't know there are other options, or maybe many of us just aren't used to giving ourselves that gift. But um, I know my own experience in working with a coach, my life changed more in three months with working with a coach than it had three years of working this stuff on my own. Yeah, I think it's a really good point, Jeanette. And... um you know, whether that's a coach that you're already working with or whether that's somebody new that you, you know, um, and, and you know, obviously you want to find a coach that's that's kind of a, got a grounding in some of this stuff that's not going to, that's going to be non-judgmental and that's going to be able to support you and all those sorts of things. Um, yeah, so thank you. And that was a brilliant question. Thank you for that. Um, and that's sort of about it from me. So any questions? I can't believe I managed to get it all in before the end of the hour. I'm so proud of myself. <laughs> I was wondering. It was, I was wondering. Is it just me, or is this like a, one of your best calls ever? I think I'm loving this call. It was really well organized and um, very. I, I I can tell you gave some thought to what you wanted to present, Janet, without giving us everything that you've got. Uh, it was yeah, a really coherent presentation. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Well. Thank you for that, Jeanette. Obviously, my brain likes the coherence. <laughs> but I think it's really, I think it's so useful to remember that, that, that one particular thing, the idea that our brains don't care about what's true. 
And the only reasons that we think that, you know, I come back again to that thing that Abraham says, because this has been a really big thing for me. And I don't know that it's, I don't know whether this is just my own filters, but I know, and I know I, I see this with clients, and maybe that's because the clients that I'm attracting, you know, that I'm attracting are tending to have the same filters that I have. But that sense of, oh, but it's true. You know, how can mm-hmm. I possibly imagine that things could be different because this is what reality looks like? And being able to remind myself that the brain does not care and it's the brain that's delivering reality, so you might as well make mm-hmm. it up. <laughs> Give yourself some room um, to play. Mm. Yeah, it gives well, us huge room to play, huge room to play. And the ideas that you've shared here, I think, make it easier to do that because it isn't so crazy. I mean, this is rather leading edge, you know. It's um, it's yeah. smart. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, um, I've just opened up my chat window and I've seen Annette saying her friend who is having the issue about not being able to stop crying about certain feelings has a lot to do with shoulds and not knowing the path. Immediately, as soon as I see that, I know that there's a lot of judgment here. You know, the should, that's any time we hear should in our own heads or coming out of our mouths, that's judgment. And while there's judgment at play, it's really hard to do this kind of work. So that would be... Um, but yeah, Annette, I would recommend that your friend talk to a coach. <laughs> and if that's, and if the friend isn't, I do want to say, um, when it comes to, this is kind of stepping slightly off topic, but Annette, um, if you haven't been able to provide the, the kind of support that your friend is, that's making the difference for your friend, I have the same thing with one of my friends who I occasionally coach. I know that my coaching is far less powerful for her because we're friends and, it's that thing of, you know, my dad always used to say he would never treat his family. He ended up having to, obviously, if we were, if it was just us at home and he was the only doctor for 50 miles around. But, um, you know, coaching a friend is sometimes tricky. So uh, I would recommend that your friend reach out to uh, a, a coach that doesn't know her well, doesn't have that closer connection. Um, and, and anything that she can do to get rid of the shoulds would be a really good point place to go and if you go to my website you'll find and do a search do a search for one tiny word you'll find a blog post I did about um, switching out should for could and um, I love that Janet that's so powerful that's my favorite trick anytime I think should I go oh I want to change it for could because it makes Mm -hmm. it so much more powerful gives us back our choice yeah yeah it's cool Cool, cool, cool. Well, this has been Any other really, questions? I just, no questions, but just um, reflecting again how inspiring this was. It was easy to follow and very relevant for, I think, conscious creators in general, let alone our topic this month. So thanks again, Janet. Really enjoyed this. Well, thank you. Like I said, I, when I saw the topic, I was so lit up and then kind of going, oh, my God, how do I, how do I corral it into something coherent? Um, so it was really, really nice. Thank you. I'm so glad that it worked. Mm-hmm. Well done. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much, everyone who turned up. I'm going to end the recording now. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.